One of the things that we uh, recited at the graveside, but also at the funeral, was the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. And so I thought I'd do a quick lesson on that this morning, uh, because it's such a sweet question and answer, and it's very helpful to us. So we'll look at the scriptures that uh, are behind this catechism question, and uh, hopefully we'll find uh, comfort from this. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your Lord's Day. We thank you that you have, uh, that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you that we have made it to the house of the Lord, and we anticipate that, Father, you will uh, bless us and feed us and strengthen us and correct us this morning. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts would be ready to receive uh, those good things and that you would bless us richly. Help us, Father. Uh, may we uh, be focused on you and your glory. And, um, Lord, may, uh, may we honor you in every one of our thoughts and meditations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the Heidelberg Catechism, number one, a little bit of background before we look at the catechism question. And uh, does anybody know anything about the Heidelberg Catechism? We're, we're a Westminster church. That's our confession. But there are churches that use the Heidelberg Catechism as their confessional documents. We have the shorter catechism, the Westminster the Westminster Larger Catechism, but there are, there's a group of churches that still use the Heidelberg Catechism as one of their um, confessional documents. Does anybody know anything about the Heidelberg? That's interesting. Okay, well, that's good. What's that? Well, it did. I'm, how did you figure that out? It was written in Heidelberg, which is a city in what place? Yeah, yeah, Germany. Yeah, I mean, Heidelberg has always been a theological center during the Reformation, and so it's not surprising that it would arise out of Heidelberg. Uh, a guy named Frederick III who was one of the electors, which means that he ruled one of the uh, little uh, region states in Germany in the, in the empire. He requested that this be written, and, uh, and so they commissioned a man named Zacharias Ursinus. Ursinus. That's a reformer's name that you should know. He's not an insignificant figure. Um, and so when he was 28 years of age and a professor, at the theolo uh, professor of theology at the Heidelberg University, he wrote this Heidelberg Catechism. There is some speculation that a guy named Caspar Oliv uh, Olivianus, another name that you should know, um, also wrote on this, but... Uh, Recent scholarship makes it 
seem as if he did very little. And so we have to give most of the credit to Ursinus. Um, why the, the catechism, why would, why would a, a government official request a catechism? Well, because he wants peace in his realm and he wants unity. And so this would bring together uh, churches and the teaching. He, um, the Heidelberg Catechism was adopted by a synod in Heidelberg and published in German with a preface by Frederick III in 1563. Okay, so we're talking about 50 years after the 95 Theses and uh, that sort of arbitrary beginning of the Reformation. Second and third edition, each that had some additions, as well as a Latin translation, were published in Heidelberg that same year. So three editions in one year. Um, <clears throat> Ursinus was accused of being more Reformed than Lutheran, which I love, right? We love that about him. Um, <clears throat> he... And he was accused of being more Reformed than Lutheran after he wrote on the sacraments. <laughs> exactly. Um, he, he had, in fact, Ursinus had studied in these cities, Strasbourg, Basel, Lausanne, and Geneva. So you would expect that he would have had more Reformed influence, uh, having studied in those cities, than uh, Lutheran. And... The, it was the Reformed churches that would take up the Heidelberg Catechism, not the Lutheran churches. The Lutherans went with Luther's Catechism and, and translations of Scripture. But it would be the Reformed churches that would take up the Heidelberg Catechism, particularly in what land? The Netherlands, yes. The Netherlands, the Dutch, would, um, would take this up. And so... Uh, the Dutch church, the Dutch Reformed churches of today, uh, of which comes in the United States, the Christian Reformed Church, the United Reformed Church, the RCA, the Reformed Church of America, all those are descended from that Dutch strain. They still use the Heidelberg Catechism. In fact, they do this weird thing in Dutch churches where they preach on the Heidelberg Catechism in the evenings at their services, which is really weird. Uh, it's not scripture, and yet they exposit the Heidelberg Catechism each, uh, each Sunday evening. The Heidelberg Catechism is laid out in 52 parts, which makes it perfect for a year, right? So every Sunday there's a different uh, question and answer. Um, that it originally wasn't like that, but it was soon after it was written, di um, divided into 52 sections. Um, Netherlands, this Heidelberg Catechism became generally and favorably known almost as soon as it came from the press, mainly through the efforts of a guy named Petrus Dathanus, who translated into the Dutch language, added this translation to his Dutch rendering of the Genevan Psalter, and that was published in 1566. The national synods of the 16th century in the Netherlands adopted it as one of the three forms of unity. Now, who's heard of the three forms of unity? 
Again, that's a Dutch reformed. It's, it's basically their, their confessional documents. Can anybody name any of the others? There's the Heidelberg Catechism and two other documents that Canons of Dort. Nope, the Belgic. The Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, and, and the, the main, the main um, issue dealt with in the Canons of Dort was more or less the five points of Calvinism in uh, contrast to the, uh, the remonstrance and the... Uh, the five points of Jacobus Arminius. And so uh, those became the confessional documents of the Reformed Church in Netherlands. Glorious heritage of the Reformed Church in the Netherlands. And then a glorious heritage of, of uh, Dutch Reformed uh, theology in America after many people left the Netherlands in persecution and came to America. Um, that, that heritage has been laid waste by liberalism today, which is not surprising. But Calvin College in uh, Grand Rapids used to uh, pump out the amazing Reformed theologians, um, Burkhoff and uh, a lot of their works that we would still use in Reformed um, seminaries. But now it's, it's woke, it's liberal, it denies the inerrancy of Scripture, and it did so in the 70s. And once you deny the inerrancy of Scripture, guess what? You get to make up the rules. And pretty much you're going to go with what tickles ears. You're pretty much going to go with what plays well uh, during your day. And so that's a very sad, um, sad End to this. The United Reformed Church, the URC, has come out of the CRC and is a much more conservative, probably confessional uh, church. And so, if you go up into the Michigan, Wisconsin area, you're going to find a lot of Christian Reformed churches and United Reformed churches. And so, um, does everybody have a copy of, of the handout? All right, so let's look at this. That's a little bit of background. Any questions about the background or why we would give attention to this being steeped in the Westminster Confession? The superior confession? No. I wouldn't say it's superior. I would say it's different and serves a different purpose than this catechism. Um, well, then let's look at it. Here's the first... This is the first of 52 questions and answers. So this forms the thesis. This forms the, everything flows out of this one answer. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. 
Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Very sweet, very comprehensive, very deep, wonderful answer to that question. The question is about what? It's about comfort. What is your only comfort? And not just comfort in death, which we're all searching for comfort uh, on our deaths, but our comfort in life, right? Our comfort now, the comfort today, um, when we are not, uh, as far as we know, approaching our deaths, right? So what is your only comfort in life and death? And the first part of this answer I think it, I've thought about more than any, any other. In fact, that first line, what is your only comfort in life and death that I am not my own? Think about that. that I am not my own. It's an amazing start to this catechism. You are not your own. You are not your own. That's good. You do not want to be your own, right? You do not want to be uh, an autonomous individual, separate from the influences of God, right? You do, you do not want to be your own. Um, this is the boast of everybody today. I am my own, right? You cannot tell me what to do. You have no authority over me. I am my own. This is how I identify, right? This is how you will identify me according to what I have determined about myself, right? Everybody today is about being their own. And, and this, this just blows that out of the water right from the start. I mean, think of all the talk of identity. I identify as this, or I identify as that. And everybody's identity that they choose flies in the face of the actual being that God has given to them, right? Well, I identify as male even though I have two X chromosomes. Well, no, God, God gave you those two X chromosomes, right? And you are female, and you are not your own. You don't get to determine this according to what you feel or what you think or what somebody else has told you. Or you don't get to define yourself in a way that's advantageous um, and plays into the victimhood of the day. Right? I am not my own. Um, I am... Uh, Everybody thinks that they define their own reality, that they uh, are not owned by anybody else. And the creed today is, I am not my own. It's, it, the, the, that is, those are foolish words, but they're also scary words. Think of, think of you claiming that you are your own. Think of approaching every hardship in this life with the, that attitude, I am my own. Think of approaching your death when you are going to cross from this world to the next, and you're proclaiming, I am my own. I've got this. 
Our comfort comes from the fact that we are not our own. We're governed by an omnipotent God. We are governed by an omnipotent God who made us, and he made us for a purpose, and the, the course of this life is our, by God's grace, finding out what his purpose for us is, how we aren't our own how we may not make up the rules, how we may not define reality in, in ways apart from the Word of God. That's, I mean, all of that is compacted into the statement. What's your only comfort in life and in death? I am not my own. I am not my own, right? And so that's a, that's a wonderful first point. How helpful it would be for each of us to, to realize we are not our own to wake up every morning and say, okay, Lord, I'm not my own. You've given me children, and so I will serve them, right? I'm not my own, right? You've given me a vocation and called me to, to do that work. I'm not my own. I, I, you know, you've given me, you've made me a man. You've made me a woman. I, I'll live accordingly, Right? Um, all of us should wake up each morning praying to God and saying, God, um, I'm yours. I'm not my own. And so when, when I get belligerent and want to make up my own rules and want to live according to what I feel and want to live according to some manufactured identity, strike me down. Right? Warn me and move me off of that. So that's where we start. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That's their proof text for that one, and I think they kind of nailed it. Now, how do we belong? How are we not our own? What, what belongs to God? And they say, but belong with body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What's important about that? Why make that point? Body and soul. What's the big deal? Why not just say, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus I make this point. Interact. Open up. Loosen up. Loosen up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, what are you? You are not a soul that is imprisoned in a body. That's, that's a wrong view, but a very popular view. That would be a Gnostic sort of view. We're souls that are imprisoned in bodies. Now, the scripture teaches that we're body and soul. And those, th- that is you. You are body and soul. 
Your body is as important, as your, is, is as much you as your soul is you. And so, um, at the graveside, when we, when we put Sarah's father's body in the ground, that was Dennis Ribbons being put into the ground. Right? It's not as if Dennis Ribbons' soul was Dennis Ribbons alone. Right? His body is him. And so we, we, don't, we don't want to make this mistake of, of dividing, uh, dividing man. Now, um, they can be separate from one another, the body and the soul, but that's not, that's awkward. That's not, that's weird for the body and the soul to be separate. It's called, in the catechism, the Westminster Catechism, it's called the intermediate state. When you, buy your, when you die, your body goes into the ground, your soul is immediately transported into the presence of God, right? Or into hell. There to await the resurrection of the body, at which point the body and soul come back together and we live eternally as body and soul, right? And that's, that's the Christian faith. That is why we put bodies in the ground. That is why we don't burn bodies and spread ashes around. We put intact bodies into the ground and, and plant them for the resurrection because that body, though decayed, though changed by decay, will rise. And so all of that, again, is packed into that. I belong both body with body and soul, both in life and in death, Right to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. <clears throat> In both life and death, we are God's. His care for us is not simply at the hour of our death, right? But at but each moment of our lives, every moment of our lives, God is superintending. God is caring for us. God is is mindful of us. He is leading us. Um, Romans 14, 7 through 9, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, both of the dead and of the living. And so who is it that belongs that we belong to, it is to Jesus Christ. Who is what? Jesus is a faithful Savior. Right? Our bodies and souls all through our life and in our death belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians 3.23, and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. That's wonderful news. If you belong to Christ... Christ belongs to the Father, and there is no severing of that. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works, belonging to Jesus Christ. That's the faith. The faith, how should I put this? The faith is not is not us just having some psychological hook to make it through life. 
The faith is actually belonging to the divine. It's belonging to Jesus Christ. It's belonging to him, right? It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just a psychological place that we enter into to make it through this life. It's actually belonging to God, it's being his. So let that encourage you. How do we belong to him? He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. So two things there, right? He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The powerful blood of Christ. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, 1 John 1.7, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 2, 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. If you belong to Jesus and Jesus sets free sets you free from bondage, then you are truly free indeed. Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And the one who practices sin, this is 1 John 3, 8, is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And so there are those two sections. How, has God, how, has God, how do we belong to him? He has fully paid for all our sins. By his precious blood, he has set us free from the power of the devil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the devil is is a tyrant. <laughs> right? He does not negotiate with anybody that he afflicts, right? He just is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He he will he he con- he will conquer. Right? He is a tyrant. But we've been made free from the power of the devil. That's not something we think about. We often think about it being freed from the bondage of sin by his blood, but we don't often think about the fact that in our salvation, we've been set free from the tyranny or the power of the devil. His, he, he will not, he cannot afflict God's children. He cannot destroy God's children, right? He cannot draw God's children away from God. It doesn't mean that God will not allow a situation like Job, right? I don't want to derail this, but I was going over 
Yeah. Now, there is the verse in 1 Thessalonians that says that he preserves our body, soul, and spirit. And so, I, you know, what do we make of that? Is he using synonyms for soul and spirit? Is there some distinction between those? Um, I mean, I've read on that, but I cannot remember. what so, Something like that. Yeah, but we don't want to sanctify some... Um, some independent sort of speculative psychological, you know, autonomous part of man. That's when, that's what we don't want to do, you know. And so, um, and there's been a lot of debate on that verse uh, as well. And I don't think any consensus on just exactly what Paul is is meaning by it. Um, some of you may have a better explanation of that than I have ready at hand, but um, let's keep going. Not only are these cosmic spiritual truths our comfort, right, but um, let's bring it down to everyday events. Not a hair can fall from our heads without God having willed it. Not a hair. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Now, that's a cosmic statement there, right? That's a, that's a hugely important statement. John six thirty nine. this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. John ten twenty seven. my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Second Thessalonians 3.3, 3, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5, We are protected by the power of God through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. Luke 21, 16, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my, because of my name. Yet... Not a hair of your head will perish. What a statement, right? Everybody's going to be against you, but, but God will not allow anything to happen to you that isn't apart from his will. Not even one hair falling from your head will be apart from his will. Is there any comfort in that? There should be great comfort in that, right? 
There should be wonderful comfort in that, that God is a Father who, who cares for you. Right? And he does so by ordering everything in this world to what end? <laughs> to his glory and your good. Right? Everything is ordered in this world to his glory and your good if you're in Christ. Right? I mean, that, that is... Um, Sarah and I last night were talking... She was asking me impossible questions about the very being of God. And I was like, well, at a certain point, I'm just, you know, uh, dust and <laughs> can't answer these questions. Um, and, it, and, and Calvin would tell us to stop speculating. But she was asking about God's care for us. Is, is he, um, and, and Sarah wanted assurance that God had, in a sense, emotional regard for his children. And I was like, well, you start talking about emotions in God and you get into a, a weird place and you don't really want a God who is emotional because emotions, from our perspective, are responses to outside stimulus and they're almost inevitable. We can't, we can't control them. God is never out of control. And God does not respond emotionally. He responds by his sovereign will. He responds by decree. And it's not even response. It's God acts. He is. Right? He, he, he is unchangeable. He does not change. He does not... Um, Emote, but then, but then in, in comes Christ, who is man and God, right? And he can sympathize, and he grieved, and he, he had an emotional um, life in a similar manner to what we have, though without sin, though without um, well, I think you get what I'm saying. And so so the, the omnipotence, the decrees of God, that is our comfort because that means that indeed everything that occurs in this world is meant for his praise and our good. Everything that occurs to you. And we, I mean, it makes us want to pull our hair out because so much of it is very painful. Right? And we wish that at times we cry out like Job, would you just please relent? And yet at the end of the day, you have to get to the place where you say, no, no, no. Everything that God lays out in his sovereign will is meant for our good. And that's better than if he just responded to me emotionally. That he actually causes actions to fall out. is much better for me than God sitting back and saying, oh, sweetheart. You know, uh, I, I, it's, it is terrible what's happened to you. But God did that. He did that thing for you. And so anyway, at, at that point, I shut down. And, and if I say any more, I'll, I'll go beyond what needs to be said. Um, all things work together for God's, 
for God's children's salvation. This is the goal of all history. Don't forget this. This is the goal of all history. This is why bombs are falling in Ukraine. This is why uh, new babies are born. This is why, um, why uh, black holes exist. This is why there's you know, buds on that tree out there. It's all for working together for the salvation of God's children. That's stupendous. That's incredible. That is mind-boggling. But don't, don't forget that because you, you'll, you'll forget it and when you forget it, your worldview will suddenly pivot and then you'll feel like you've got you've, you've to work everything out in this world and, and, uh, and, and suddenly your peace will just be terribly dashed, right? Um, God is sovereign and that is, no, that is no unfeeling doctrine. That should actually make your heart beat faster. So all things work together for God's children. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And of course, what's the verse that they're referring to? That's right, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. All things. All things. Nothing independent of that. All right. And then finally, therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. The Spirit living within his children gives assurance. Gives assurance of eternal life and a productive and not just assurance of eternal life, but assurance of a life lived to his glory, a life, a productive life, a life settled in the faith. Right? For you, uh, eight, Romans 8.15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. 2 Corinthians 1.21, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. 2 Corinthians 5.5, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And then Romans eight fourteen for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And so, notice the therefore in that last statement. What's your comfort? I'm not my own. I belong to Jesus. How, is, how do we belong to Jesus? He's paid for my sins. He set me free from the power of the devil. He preserves me, right? And God's sovereign care has bound me into the life of God. 
Therefore, because of all of that, the Holy Spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Christian life is not the... The Christian life, right, is not just one, it's not escapism. It's not just one of, you know, this life is awful, heaven's coming. It's, this life is hard, I'm going to serve, while I live, I'll serve Christ and honor him and then rest, right? There, there is, it, we, we must be made heartily willing and ready to, to live for him now. And that often will get abandoned. And whether that's a function of your eschatology or a function of bad teaching you've received at some point, um, people think of, of this life as, as not mattering but it is your opportunity to glorify God immediately. Um, he has given you a calling. If you are a child of God, do you think that you have something to do in this life? Right? Do you have something that he would have you do in this life? And of course, there are a thousand things that he would have you do in this life. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, you are willing and ready to do all those things. You're willing and ready to give your life up for Christ, knowing and remembering that the eternal Sabbath and rest will come at the end of the ages. Now, question two, you might be wondering, what is question two? What do they follow this question one up with? And question two is, what do, we, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And their answer is this. First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. Right? So know you're a sinner. Know how you're delivered from sin. And be thankful. (laughs) Wonderful answer to that. That's what you need to know. To live in comfort. You're a sinner. There's a Savior. Thank God for it. <laughs> that'll, that'll get you through uh, your whole life. And that will sustain you on your deathbed. Should the Lord take you that way. And um, your, your last thought as you pass from this life to the next will be on your faithful Savior. Any thoughts or questions about this? We're at the end of the end of our time. Anything? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, we still have a hundred years before there's the Westminster. So, I mean, it, it, it was a summary of Reformed doctrine at this point. Um, so, it's probably come to represent that, but historically, we still, we still have 100 years before the, the Westminster, or 75 or 80, something like that. 
All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our faithful Savior. We thank you that you, your care for us goes down to the very ordering of everything that plays out in this world. Lord, we thank you that, that we serve an omnipotent God. There's, there's nothing arbitrary. There's nothing that should scare us. Father, because, uh, because we are hidden in Christ. And so, Father, we pray that, this, that we would spend time thinking about this question and this answer, that we would look to your scriptures for comfort, and that in our life and in our death, comfort would be what we have and find in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.